0: hello and welcome to the Boldness. my name's Phineas me at morning me well he's actually not joining me but he's recording this is a raphael Collab. hello Raphael in the background well today today we have the privilege of speaking with the director of the so- Center for social impact at the University of New South Wales It is. Gemma Carey, hello, Gemma.
1: Hi, Ben. how are
0: you? I'm um, very, very well. So, and we should just say the boldness before started is about not waiting, for, well, not waiting for some well-meaning person to give you your human rights, but grabbing them with both hands. Now, uh, Je- Gemma, boy, um, you're obviously you've got a person that wears many hats, um, what, uh, what, what have you noticed recently about the NDIS coverage in the in the mainstream media? Is it, uh, has there been enough of it in your personal
1: opinion? I think, um, quantity is not so much of an issue. Um, Quality, I I think that uh, there's been a lot going on and a lot sort of being said by Minister Reynolds and um, Hoffman the CEO of the NDIA that probably deserves a little bit more scrutiny than it than it is currently getting.
0: What uh, <clears throat> and yes, well, well there's there's uh, there's a lot to lot to unpack there. What um what what do you what do you make of the the what do you make of the uh well firstly we should start by just I guess um, starting from the beginning for those that don't know what what is what is the NDIS, what is the ndis and what was its original intent?
1: So the ndis is what we call in technical policy land, a, um, a personalisation scheme where people with a severe and permanent disability are able to access budgets uh, which they can use to buy services and supports that meet their needs. The vision of the NDIS that it would, was that it would be equitable uh, and people would have choice and control over the services that they access that help them fully participate in life Rather than what we had before, which was uh, a much more limited and kind of stock standard um, set of government-funded services. That that was the vision. Um,
0: I guess the government is now saying that um, that vision is becoming unsustainable. With the, they're they're saying that this scheme is currently worth at. Uh, it's a 22 billion dollars scheme, but that's going to rise by uh, to 25 billion over the next three over the next three or four years, or or into the future. Um, I guess the question, therefore, is how do you, is, the, is do you think uh, how is how is the scheme sustainable?
1: Look, I think there's a bit of a question over the the case they're putting forward around its lack of sustainability. So, it was always projected to cost 22 billion, so I don't think 3 billion is really that much more. But also I'm not really sure what data that is based on. We haven't had a lot of transparency around that. The other thing that hasn't gone into that discussion is what are all of the costs that have been saved uh, in terms of the, you know, prevention of people ending up in the healthcare system when they didn't need to? Um, people who've been able to kind of realise new economic opportunities because of the NDIS. So I think we're only being shown kind of one side of the balance sheet, right, which is the cost. But what we're not being shown if we're going to reduce everybody's lives down to a dollar figure um, is the, the income, the profit that's been made out of the NDIS and improving um, the quality of services and access to services that people with a disability have.
0: What do we we have to do to to, to show the the government that or for them to acknowledge that?
1: It's a really good question. Um, I've been asked a few times over the last couple of weeks if that kind of economic analysis exists. It doesn't exist um, because we don't have public access to the kind of data that would enable us uh, to do it, what we actually need is the government to go back to a body like the Productivity Commission that you know did all of the costing and the original plan of the ndas and ask them to um, you know re the actual cost-benefit analysis of the scheme as it currently exists. It's it's
0: interesting. Also, uh, I guess in terms of what the government is looking at is. Uh, also, um, the new ministers' use of use of language. She's talking about high and low. She's talking about high and low functioning, uh, and saying that that there's been a significant increase in participants participants being uh, high high functioning and a significant decrease in low functioning, and she's saying that. It, it, it i want she wonders if it, it bears out over time whether people will be whether the scheme is making people less less functioning which is a very odd thing to say i would have thought
1: it's extremely odd. And, you know, you look at the eligibility criteria, right, which is a lifelong permanent disability. A lot of the people in that category can have degenerative disabilities. So we it would be completely reasonable to expect that there's a decrease in functioning. I don't think we can imply cause and effect. The scheme is making them less functional. Um, and I don't really understand how the scheme could be making people less functional either. Um, so the, as I mean, when I said at the start, I just think there's a lack of scrutiny into um, there's some really problematic statements being said without anything much to back them up. Um, feels a lot like political spin. Because, Yeah,
0: it seems also that the the government, in terms of its figures, is hiding behind um, the hiding behind the budget. Hiding behind the, the the budget, which will come which will come out after this program or uh, before this program airs, rather. Um, but it seems that it, it's hiding behind the the budget and and figures to act figures to, to actually make its costings and projections um, transparent. I
1: I agree. I think that there. I mean, I know that there's been a um a more kind of stealthy plan and approach to um, cutting the ndis this is probably the first time that we've seen it be articulated up front and clearly you know that that things like independent assessments and other reforms on the table are actually about cost containment of the scheme um, so on the one hand, well, I guess they're being honest on that front, but on the other, I don't, I don't really understand where the concern lies. I also don't like the fact that we're reducing um, all of this, like people's lives and well-being, down to a dollar figure. Um, I don't have a problem with things like the NDIS or Medicare costing the government a lot of money because that's what taxes are for and that's what government is there for. It's to provide for the well-being of our citizens. Um, so
0: I, I think... I guess the government would... I guess that if I'm channelling my inner government person they, or inner Linda Reynolds, if that's possible, um, if I'm... <clears throat> probably not, but anyway... Um, I hope telling- you're <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, um, I'm just think, thinking. Wouldn't that? Wouldn't their argument be? Well, um, we have to, we have to run. We have to run this as an insurance scheme. So there has to be a dollar, a dollar spend amount to each person.
1: Um. Look, it does. And and I've always had questions about the insurance kind of element that is unique internationally in this kind of scheme. Uh, But the, you know, as I said, we're we're, we're only seeing one side of the balance sheet, which is the costs going out. Those costs are meant to be offset by the gains we get from um, people being able to participate economically, having to use costly healthcare system um, services less, and a variety of other things. So, even if I'm to pretend to be Linda Reynolds, um, I, I'm, I'm still, I'm not convinced in those numbers and those numbers being a problem, basically.
0: Now, you, you mentioned before about. Um people receiving people receiving support and the gov- the government is talking about uh, legislating a definition of reasonable and necessary supports why why are, they, why are they looking to do that and will it mean people lose support they they need like a person who has a person with muscular dystrophy they might uh, Lose a generator. I believe that in the NDIS won't uh, won't fund them going forward. So, yeah. What what will what will what will a definition of reasonable and net support uh, mean for participants into the future? I think there's two issues there. So
1: one is that. Um... Right from the start of the NDIS, we've seen a kind of cost shifting back and forth, an argument between kind of mainstream services like the healthcare sector and the NDIS, um, and each of them trying to push costs on each other. The second piece of that is that I, reasonable and necessary has always been a bit of a tricky thing to have in the legislation because it gets interpreted by... Um, a lot of different planners, right, across the whole scheme with 400,000 participants. Um, And there's, a you know, what what is reasonable and necessary uh, according to one person might not be to another. What worries me, though, is if this government redefines reasonable and necessary into uh, a very narrow kind of definition and constrainment of that, what we're going to see is, uh, firstly, is it being done to actively exclude people from the scheme? Um, and we've seen that before where, you know, it's a very blurry line between what is a health condition and what is a disability. But we see people being told, well, you can't have access to the NDIS because you have a health condition. Um, it doesn't matter that that health condition results in, you know, functional limitations that for li- your lived experience of that health condition is actually a disability. Um, but we I think we'll also see people's packages being reduced so anything that can be determined as well that's just a a normal living cost we won't cover that or that should be on the healthcare system I think we'll see more and more offloading of those types of things either onto other systems um, or onto individuals to cover themselves um, which is probably the one that really scares me right like Um, It's not so bad if things get palmed off on other government support systems, but it's really bad if people are expected to pay out of pocket.
2: We're going to play a community announcement for Radiothon. Then we'll be back with Loz's Stars and continuing the interview with Professor Gemma Carey.
0: Support during our annual Radiothon and be part of Community Powered Radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2021.
1: To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate
2: online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon,
0: Community Powered Radio. Oh
2: Loz's Stars, where Loz will give reviews of movies or TV shows on or at the cinemas or streaming on your digital devices. Hi, this is Murdoch and Loz, panellists on The Boldness, and this is Loz's Stars. Hi Loz, what show are we reviewing today? A documentary called Stackerama. And what is this program about? It's about cup stacking, an individual and team sport using specially designed cups in sequence as fast as possible. We follow Jaden Coggins, a 15 year old boy with autism. He's the fastest cup stacker in Australia and one of the fastest in the world. It follows his quest to get to Florida for the 2018 World Championship. It shows great support he receives from his family, particularly after his deselection. From the Australian team, after a disagreement with the Australian coach and manager, he and his family decide to enter the competition as an individual and we see how he copes with the pressures of the world-class opposition. The speed and skill of the cup stackers is incredible. We also see the great friendship and sportsmanship of the world's cup stacking community. Jaden wins one open section of the competition. He also wins the 15-year-old overall championship. He also finishes fifth in the world overall. So, Loz, what did you think of this documentary? I thought it was excellent. It showed that even with autism, a person can excel in their chosen sport against anyone. And it showed how he faced up to many challenges and setbacks. Where can we find this show, Loz? It's available on ABC iView. And Loz how did you rate it I really enjoyed it I give it seven stars Thanks Loz and thanks once again for listening to Loz's stars well,
0: how do how do we how do, how do, we, ensure, how do we ensure that people um, people don't have to? the the, on, the onus is not on the individual to to pr- prove it, prove everything
1: yeah i'm very i'm very worried about that and with the independent assessors and um i i think it you know None of, none of us <laughs> quite know how to stop this, but I think there is something about going back to the kind of um, coordinated action that we saw around the Every Australia Counts campaign that got the NDIS up in the first place, um, that we we need to come together and fight to protect the scheme from being eroded at this point. We should
0: should also m- mention that um, the, the government is, has also or it's also been flagged as a possibility or people worried that the government will that the government uh, minister may have oversight into what is reasonable and and necessary and um their their intervention and arbitration i suppose it can be
1: final Yeah, I think that's really scary. Um, The NDIS does have a very, very complex structure, um, but that was done deliberately. So it was set up to be co-owned by all of the states and Commonwealth government for the exact reason that that you said, that we don't don't want one person um, or one minister to have the power over the whole scheme. Uh, So Rick Morton, who's been doing fabulous reporting into it, calls it God power. Um, we don't want it to be at the discretion of whoever holds the Minister of Disability role um, to be able to say, well, I don't deem that reasonable and necessary. Uh, and we've seen that play out right, where um, Minister Stuart Roberts didn't like um, sex well-being supports being in the scheme. So he was going to personally say they're no longer allowed to be. Um, we, you know, it's a complex model to make work. Uh, and I've done a lot of research on, on the the struggles of making that complex federated model work. But on the other hand, that's also was, you know, it's a protective factor, right, that no one state government and no one minister can come in over the top and say, I don't believe that you should get that support.
0: In, in, in de- indeed. Uh, going back to um, independent functional assessment, which uh, everyone... All the disability advocates I I know and the disability sector at large um, don't really like this proposal. For what is what is the what is for those that don't know what is the what are independent assessments and why why are they a bad thing?
1: So the best I can tell, it is a little bit murky, is an independent assessment is that instead of you uh, collecting evidence from um, your doctors and allied health professionals who've been working with you for years and understand um, your disability on a good day and a bad day, that you'll have someone who is some kind of allied health professional, um, but not specialised in your disability, come out for a few hours and do an assessment of you on that day. It is on the basis of that and that alone um, that your plan and budget will be drawn up for what supports you need. What worries me about that is that, um, you know, it's been called, I think, by both Minister Reynolds, um, Stuart Roberts and Hoffman, um, Hoffman, um, that this is about fairness. um, Because people are getting different package sizes um, and different supports. I would say that this is intrinsically unfair um, and it's unfair in a number of levels so it's unfair because the person assessing you actually can't realistically get a good assessment of what you need in a short period of time um, because a lot of people have good and bad days and what if they come on a good day you know and and then you're left on your bad days without the supports that you need The other thing is that this is really likely to um, make it even harder for people who are already struggling to access and and use the scheme, which is remote communities, Indigenous communities um, and people from cultural and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Uh, So, you know, if I take an Indigenous community for an example, um, it doesn't. It's not going to work very well to send a complete stranger out to um, a remote Indigenous community and have them say, I am assessing you. There's a long history of trauma there that would be, you know, at risk of reactivating. Um, if I take a cold community, uh, does that IA have a translator? Do they understand um, the culture around disability and family support networks within that particular community or group of people, I mean, these are very sort of nuanced things um, to understand the extent of somebody's disability, but also how it exists in relation to their family and their community. It's not something that you can spend three hours ticking a few boxes um, with these standardised forms they're planning to use, and then accurately come up with plans that reflect what people need. So, to me, the independent assessors actually would erode that original vision we talked about, which was about choice and control uh, and services that fit you as an individual. Um, I think we're going to see a more standardised set of services and then that takes us back to the system that we were replacing with the NDIS. We said that standardised services didn't work and weren't fair, and yet now we're heading back in that direction.
0: Awesome also we should just acknowledge that the government has announced they're pausing, pausing them what do you think that they'll what do you think that uh, independent assessments will look like in in the future
1: I, from what I saw yesterday at the um, Senate inquiry, I don't I don't think that this is a, a true pause in the sense of pausing and reassessing if this is the right path to go down. I think it's a um, pause while they consult with the advocacy sector. Um, but there's consulting and there's hearing, right? Like we, the sector academics like me, we've all been very vocal, saying exactly the same thing about this. Um, planned set of reforms. Uh, so they've already heard it. Uh, I guess with my cynical hat on, it's going to be an exercise in saying, okay, we heard you and we decided to do it anyway.
0: What, what so just, uh, we're probably running fast out of t- time, but what, what does, what uh, changes are disability advocates c- calling for and what changes would you like to see in what the government is proposing with the NDIS, Professor Jim McCary?
1: Look, I, you know, I do think that there was a problem in how assessments were doing done before in that you as an individual had to pay a lot of money to go and get all of your reports. I don't, you know, and some people couldn't afford that. I, I definitely think there was a problem with that. I think the better solution to that um, is to pay for those reports on behalf of people Um I worry about government contracted assessors who have, um, you know, we don't know what's going to be in those contracts, but, for example, they could have in there that um, they need to reduce the size of plans. Uh, If you go back to the Productivity Commission um, design of the NDAS, it did talk about independent assessors, but it talked about them as being independent from the participant as well as being independent from government and the agency. Um, That's very different from what's on the table at the moment. Um, So if the government insisted on going down an independent assessor line, I would want those assessments to be independent from the NDIA. And I would also want them to be, you know, being done by appropriate people um, who have skills and knowledge and take time with people to understand what's going on in their lives and, and what their disability is. Um, rather than this, you know, it's been proposed that it'll be three hours and they'll have a standardised form that works for all disabilities. A standardised form for work that works for all disabilities, like that's an impossible tool to create. Um, It doesn't make any sense. And it's also, again, against the whole principle of the scheme, which is that every person's need and every disability is different and requires different supports. Um, So I would say, you know, I, I would like to see independent assessors scrapped altogether um, if they insisted on using them, I, I certainly wouldn't want or trust them to be contracted out by an agency that has a vested interest in reducing costs of the scheme at the expense of the wellbeing of people with disability across Australia.
0: And what about, is there any, um, is, I know that uh, disability advocates recently have been talking about uh, a principle of co-designing the scheme with government do you think that that would do you think that would work
1: I think it would I think that you know we started off with co-design uh, that's what got the NDAS up and I think we've gradually been losing that over time so if they if you know if you want to make major changes to this game it should come back to that principle of nothing about us without us um, and I don't think this government is embodying that. I, I think that they're making decisions um, not just on behalf of people with disability, but they're they're not even paying attention when people from the sector are almost screaming at them, like that this is a terrible idea and this is going to impact people's lives in a bad way.
0: Fantastic. Well, well, actually, not not fantastic. The government needs to act. So, <laughs> um, so um... listen. <laughs> They sure do. Now, um, thank you very much for joining us tonight, Professor Gemma Carey from the Centre for Social Impact at the University
1: of New South Wales. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: Thank you very much. We're going to be back on the 16th of June for radio song. We're going to go out with a song, Planet of the Blind by the Karen Shader Band. Keep listening to Completed by Lovely. Thank you. On the planet of the blind, I'm striding down the street in the kingdom of